The hymn is 614. We will sing stanzas 5, 6, 7, and 8. Hymn 614. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord Jesus, we give thanks to you that you have given to your church on earth that special authority to forgive the sins of repentant sinners, but to withhold forgiveness from the unrepentant as long as they do not repent. Grant faithfulness to your church and her ministers in preaching the gospel and administering your sacraments. Deliver us from all impenitence and unbelief. Give us truly repentant hearts that confessing our sins and fleeing to your mercy, we might receive from you the full and free forgiveness of all our sins. By your forgiveness, strengthen our faith in you and grant us to live in faithfulness and love toward others. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. That hymn is one of the great catechetical hymns on the office of the ministry, the office of the keys. Uh, for the week, we're going to be working in school, and I encourage you to work at home on memorizing, learning by heart, verses 5 through 8. The words which absolution give are his who died that we might live. What a powerful promise. The minister whom Christ has sent is but his humble instrument, vehicle, instrument, of the Lord's own word. The purpose of the office of the keys is to deliver the key that opens the kingdom of heaven and life with God that reconciles us to him, and that is the forgiveness of sins. 
It is the forgiveness of sins which Jesus earned for us in his death upon the cross. There is absolutely authority associated with the office of the ministry, and it is the authority of Christ. No minister is arrogant and proud because he exercises the authority which Christ has given. I mean, to say something like, oh, far be it from me to speak the Lord's word, that would be the height of arrogance. It is humility to speak what Christ has given, the way he has given it and for the purposes for which he has given it. The purpose of the office of the keys is to deliver that forgiveness and to give a certainty. The monster of uncertainty. Am I really right with God? Do I really have salvation? Well, he gives you the word in preaching and in sacraments and in the absolution that you might know with certainty. My sins are forgiven. I am right with God through my Lord Jesus Christ. To have that kind of confidence is not arrogant. To have that kind of confidence is to place the entirety of one's faith, or in the case of the pastor, the office of the ministry, into the hands of Jesus, who has given that word. And what does that word do? It not only comforts the troubled conscience, it not only revives and strengthens faith, but it also gives the joy of salvation in the midst of the trials and tribulations of life so that we are not afraid. So I'm glad you're here this morning and you're not afraid. It doesn't mean you may not get sick. Do you know you can get sick of other things than COVID-19, by the way? Did you know that? <laughs> I know, I realize you wouldn't maybe know that in the world today, but there are other things for which you might get sick. All right, when ministers lay on their hands, absolved by Christ, the sinner stands. He who by grace the word believes, the purchase of his blood receives. All praise to you, O Christ, shall be for absolution full and free, in which you show your richest grace from false indulgence, hearkening back to how they would pay money or go on pilgrimages to trigger God's uh, forgiveness, which is a lie. That's a false indulgence. So from false indulgence, guard our race. So great hymn on the office of the keys, and therefore I will have you turn to that in the catechism. It's on the congregation at prayer or in the hymnal around 300 and something. All right, so let us speak this together. What is the office? Uh, first of all, from last week, confession that bridges then into the office of the keys. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins. And second, that we receive absolution. That is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. What is the office of the keys?
Where is this written? What do you believe according to these words? I believe that when all ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from a Christian congregation, and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better, this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ I want you to turn to the second page of the congregation at prayer. One of the things that helps the teaching of the catechism to be inculcated not simply as a matter of doctrine, but doctrine that leads into life and the significance of this doctrine for the Christian life is prayer. So, in the Congregation of Prayer for this week, you will notice there are three collects or prayers that are tied into the office of the keys. The first one I used at the beginning of Bible class, Thanksgiving for the office of the keys. And then look at the next two, prayer for confidence to believe in the promise of the office of the keys. O Lord Jesus, you gave the gift of your Holy Spirit to your disciples. Remember in the upper room? Receive the Holy Spirit. And promise that if they forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. Remember, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. The gift of the Spirit comes through the word of absolution. So it's not two different phenomena. When he said, peace be with you, he was breathing on them his Holy Spirit. When your pastor absolves you of your sins, that is the breath of the Holy Spirit to create faith, to comfort the conscience. Okay, you promise that if they forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. And if they do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Grant us to believe your promise so that we receive the ministry of our pastors in repentant faith and with the confidence that they are speaking on your behalf and for the sake of our soul's salvation. In your holy name we pray, amen. Those of you who are able to come to the Didache Divine Service uh, on Monday mornings, we have a lot of the retired folks coming, you will note here in these prayers an example of prayer being the voice of faith that then claims the promises of God's word. So you take the words of Christ from John 20 that are in the catechism, and then they're cast in the form of asking for the very things that the Lord promises. So that's another thing that these catechism prayers are intended to do. All right, then finally, the third uh, prayer offered is prayer to receive the ministry of your pastor. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of the office of the holy ministry. Give faithfulness to my pastor as he calls me to repentance and faith in your son. 
Strengthen me to believe that when my pastor deals with me by Christ's divine command, whether he excludes me from the Lord's Supper for a time in order to call me to repentance, or absolves me when, by the grace of God, I repent of my sins and want to do better, that this is just as valid and certain, even in heaven, as if Christ, my dear Lord, dealt with me himself. Through the same Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. So here, again, you see how the prayers are used to integrate uh, the doctrine into the daily life of the Christian. Now, we're going to go to, on to the Bible verse for the week, but any comments or questions that anyone has? Yes, Bob. What would have to occur for you to exclude somebody from What would have to occur, uh, occur for me to exclude someone? Like it says in the colic, for, for a time. Okay? Um, let's, let's say that you came to me or it was brought to my attention that you were embittered against Pat for something. And you were having, you're just, I, I, I don't know that I can forgive her. Whatever it would happen to be. I understand, Bob. I'm going to ask that we talk about this further and that you not come to the Lord's table today and let's plan to meet soon to talk about what's troubling you and so forth. Okay, so what is the pastor concerned about? Now here, if this is like a private matter, it's not manifest, so I'm going to ask you discreetly not to come so that we can deal as my concern as a pastor is true repentant faith on your part, which, which in part includes letting go of the sins of others. You follow? Okay. Now if it becomes manifest, remember, excommunication is something that is done not for specific sins. Let me repeat that. Excommunication is not done for specific sins. So, Bob, if you murdered Pat, that's excommunication is not for the physical sin of murder. Now, if you were impenitent, yeah, I killed her, and I was glad I did. Well, then that becomes manifest, and then church discipline is brought to bear, and if you do not repent it would end in ex-communion, out of the communion. You follow? Um, so what is it for? Excommunication is for manifest, that means it's known, impenitence, which is a refusal to acknowledge one's sin, to turn from it, and to flee to Christ. So to hold on to and harbor the right to sin in this way, I had a right to murder that woman because she was X, Y, and Z, and I hated her. Well, not only am I going to ask you not to commune, but I'm going to continue to try to call you to repentance for that, and after repeated attempts to do that, it would eventually end in excommunication. Does that help? Okay. John. But excommunication is not permanent. Oh, never. I mean, well, it may be. Uh, excommunication is done for the purpose, as John says, of actually announcing the judgment of God against an impenitent one, that if you die in your impenitence, you'll be condemned. So it is, the, it is the, like the ultimate 
call of, to repentance, the ultimate judgment of the law to bring about that change of heart so that there can be restoration. So, yeah, Philip. Right, and if they persisted in their uh, spiritual adultery, they would lose their very salvation. So the judgment and affliction that came upon them actually served God's good purposes to save them. Cindy? Yes, you, she says if you're having trouble forgiving someone, don't you need the Lord's Supper all the more? There's a difference between I hate Carrie's guts and I want him damned to hell, I will not forgive him, and Carrie's hurt me, I want him to forgive him, and I do, and yet I find it difficult. There's a huge difference between those two. So the struggle with sin is not the same thing as impenitence and the refusal to turn from sin. Okay? All right. That leads us then into our verse for the week from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. This, in quotations, is the voice of the Lord. Let's speak it together. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Yeah, redness, the redness of sin. You think about blood uh, that is poured out unto death. So here we've got scarlet and red. Notice in the Lord's word to us here, Forgiveness can never be equated with the idea that sin doesn't matter. So if, if you sin against one another and confess to one another, like if uh, there's something that goes on in the home and a husband to his wife and says, I'm sorry, do not reply with, it's okay. You get the idea? It's okay is not an absolution. And if you screamed and hollered at your wife, it's not okay. Even if you say you're sorry for it, it's not okay. It's never okay. Okay? So when you say, I forgive, or when the Lord says, I forgive, it's not because, ah, never mind, it's okay. The sin really wasn't that bad. I know, Lord, you didn't mean it. That's not it. The sin is acknowledged in God's law and in the confession of sins as being true, objectively, before God. So that's captured here. You know, though your sins are like scarlet, though they are red like crimson, it doesn't sugarcoat the reality of the putridness of sin under the judgment of God's law. But in this transaction of absolution, come now, let us reason together. Though this is the case, now this will be the case. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
My favorite time of the winter is after a snowstorm if we get bright sunshine, that you can hardly look at the radiance of the snow. That's what your forgiveness and righteousness is like in Christ. I texted that on WhatsApp to my dear brother Patrick in uh, Ghana, sending him a couple of pictures of the snow and so forth and what the cold was. And when am I going to experience this weather, was his reply. <laughs> There's nothing like taking someone who grew up in West Africa on the uh, equator at sea level and bringing, dropping them into this. I take, I take too much pleasure in it, I really do. But, but you really get a sense of what the forgiveness and righteousness of Christ is, how full and complete and total it is. You know, the blanket of white snow, you've got to admit, it's pretty. If you just didn't have to drive in it or, you know, push it around. We've had a nice winter because uh, we keep getting these fresh snows, so it hasn't started to look dirty. There's nothing worse than the dirty snow. Well, I, there are worse things, but okay. Uh, let us speak this verse one more time. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Okay, good. Let's go to Exodus chapter 11. Barry, is that gentleman uh, your, uh, uh, an acquaintance of yours? Ah, okay. Now, someone was here this morning from another church in Sussex, and this church has not been open for services since March. What's that? Yeah, all virtual, which is not the same thing as in person. Hey, Laura, what did I do with it? My congregational prayer. It's your job to keep track of these things. If I don't put my uh, congregation of prayer back up there, then during the service I realize I, I need to go. So when you see me going to the room there, it's not because I'm sick. It's because I forgot something. Okay. All right, Exodus chapter 11, uh, the Lord saves Israel by the blood of the Passover lamb. Uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned this, and it bears repeating today, that a lot of us tend to think that the deliverance from slavery in Egypt was caused by the plagues, and ultimately the last plague, the death of the firstborn. Uh, the plagues were God's judgment, as we said, the first nine, three groups of three, against the gods of Egypt, the gods of the underworld, this world, and the overworld. Uh, but finally, what delivered them from slavery was the blood of the Passover lamb. That's how the Lord presents it theologically. And there's a reason for that. Redemption means to be purchased. 
So the price of redemption for us is the blood of Christ. So his blood redeemed us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. So that is prefigured in the slaughter of the Passover lamb in the Old Testament. It's why St. Paul says in Corinthians, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So remember the second article of the creed and the explanation in the small catechism. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. What does redeem mean? Purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. There's the bondage, the slavery. How did he do it? Not with gold or silver. That wasn't the purchase price. But with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Okay? So the death of the firstborn who are not covered with the Passover blood means and signifies that those who are not covered by the eternally and first begotten of the Father, his blood, uh, are not delivered from the judgment. Okay? So the death of the firstborn in the Old Testament, not covered with the blood, points forward to the death of the only begotten Son whose blood must cover you for salvation. Now, what I want to do um, here before we go into reading of the text is also remind you of something that was mentioned two weeks ago, or, or I guess last week, just as a teaser for today. Because of the snow, we didn't go on to this lesson last week, but spent our time with uh, the Catechism from the Congregation at Prayer. You have two fundamental actions in the Passover. And those actions are the slaughter of the lamb. You cannot slaughter an animal, whether it's a lamb or a calf, told you the story about when I was a little boy, the farmer did not want me to go down by the barn when someone came and bought a calf for, for veal and, and slaughtered the calf down by the barn because it, you know, you slit the throat and the blood goes everywhere. So when you're talking about the slaughter, it's not just a quick execution that's not messy where there's a slaughter of a lamb or an oxen or a sheep or whatever, there is blood. The blood flows. So in the Passover, the slaughter of the lamb, the pouring out of the lamb's blood, and then where was the blood to go? On the doorposts and lintel, signifying that everyone in the house was covered by the blood. Now, what a great picture of the church. In holy baptism... We are brought into the household of the church and covered with the Lamb's blood. Okay? Uh, if we had a different architecture here, we could put the font at the entrance to remind ourselves that the entrance into Christ, into the body of Christ, into the church, is through baptism, whereby we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. 
But this is the first action of the Passover, the slaughter of the lamb. The second, then, is if you're in the house for the Passover, what do you do? You eat the lamb. Okay? Now do you see the correspondence with the New Testament? What happens to Christ? He is slaughtered on the cross. And then in the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of the Son of God is eaten and drunk. So you see how these two actions of the Passover find their fulfillment in the New Testament in Christ's body and blood. Okay? And um, some of the things that we'll go over today in the text then are, you know, shadowing, prefiguring, anticipating the Lord's death and the Lord's supper. Uh, for example, when it sp- talks about the institution of the Passover as an everlasting ordinance, well, my wife doesn't eat lamb. So even if we attempted to celebrate a Passover, she, she hates lamb. She doesn't eat lamb. Well, it's an everlasting ordinance because it finds its fulfillment in Christ's death and in the Lord's Supper. So the continuation there. Just like baptism at the flood, at the Red Sea, finds its fulfillment in, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Philip. Um, In the Lord's Supper, where you eat and drink the body and blood of Christ, one thing that in the Old Testament, you didn't drink the blood. That was a big no-no. And there is the the life is in the blood. And is that because the true life and the true Passover lamb are in Christ? Or is there... Yes. It's... So they couldn't drink the blood in the Old Testament. Anticipation for, which they wouldn't have realized at the time, uh, the blood of Christ that they could consume in the New Testament. Okay? Amazing. Yes? What's the difference between the the flesh and the blood then? Because they're able to eat the flesh but not the blood. And I know he says... You're right. Uh, Nathan asked the question, what about the, the, the difference between the flesh and the blood? In the Old Testament... They were to roast the, the meat so that there was no blood in it at all. Like some of you like your steaks well done, which is a sin. <laughs> On this side of the cross, we now can have juicy, medium-rare steaks, which I'm going to have later today. Okay? So... Yeah, the, the blood is completely roasted uh, out of it. But I guess my question is, like, why, why, why not just, you can't eat everything? Why is the blood in particular that prohibited thing and the flesh is okay? Well, uh, first of all, the flesh then would have no blood remaining right. in it. But why is it prohibited? It's what I was saying about it finds its... It's prohibited in the Old Testament because that's provisionary. 
Whereas in the New Testament, now the blood of Christ gives life. So it was, it was, that was prefigured in the Old Testament, the pouring out of the lifeblood unto death and wrath of God. Now in the New Testament, the blood of Christ that was poured out upon the cross is that which gives life, not wrath, but life, not judgment, but salvation. Okay? So um, it, it also it, it, it teaches the radical character of what Christ has done. Look at how many things we don't do any longer. And to do those things any longer, Old Testament rituals, would be a denial of Christ as the fruition, the fulfillment, the telos of those things. Okay? Lori? Yes, that's true. So really and, for no other reason than that specific. Right. And, and, and there are, on the one hand, salvation is through Christ regardless of whether we're talking about Adam and Eve or someone who lives today. You know, that's the salvation of Christ, death and resurrection extends backward and forward in time. But there are changes. For example, uh, you only ate vegetables and fruits prior to the flood. Then after the flood, meat is able to be eaten, but not with the blood in it. After Christ, now we get... To so culturally speaking, that's true? I mean, the Jewish people would then, after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, would then consume... Well, they didn't know that, and they don't do that now. What a, what a terrible thing, you know. Unless they're not Orthodox Jews, then they... Well, because there's a lot of symbolism in it then, right? Sure. I mean, Judaism today is very radically different because they don't have the sacrifices going on. You don't have daily, seven days a week, twice daily uh, public sacrifices at an outside altar. That doesn't go on today anymore. You, you, you look confused. Why? I don't know. You tell me. No, why? Why, why don't they do that anymore? Well, there is no temple. Yep. So Judaism becomes entirely moralistic, and it loses the character of what, those, what that liturgy... The purpose of the liturgy is to teach us what we need to know about Christ. So they're not learning from the liturgy anymore because they don't use it. You can say, oh, they use a lot of the liturgy. At the heart of the liturgy of the Old Testament church were sacrifices, blood sacrifices over and over and over and over again. Okay? Just Pastor. also how the blood was used in the Old Testament. It was used, it was drained out separately and it was sprinkled on people, it was sprinkled on yeah. So there was a use for the blood for not necessarily consuming it, but to shed or there, spread on there is There is no synagogue worshiping Jewish community today that I'm aware of that actually has blood sacrifices and sprinkles uh, the congregation with blood and water on the Day of Atonement. Is Lori's question, why don't we do the sacrifices, or why don't... No. 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 Okay. It was why don't Jews? Yeah. Yeah. 
So that they don't means that it, you know, it goes back to the age-old question, why do the Jews not believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It's theological. They'd be happy to accept a, a, a Messiah who was an earthly ruler, but the Messiah who proclaims the gospel of salvation by grace and not by works is rejected. When you go to the New Testament, you see the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees they rejected and hated Jesus because of the teaching of salvation by grace and not by human works. That's the reason they rejected him. Joe? And also going along with the, the works greatness of the Old Testament church, their state, not the church, the Israelites, their exodus. They see all these miracles happen, they see it with their own eyes, and yet they reject God. Yeah, the, the Old Testament, uh, I just want you to not misunderstand Joe here when he talks about the works righteousness of the Old Testament. That was a false belief. Abraham believed God and he was declared righteous, accounted righteous. The true faith of the Old Testament was salvation by grace through faith and not by works. But just as, just as in the church today, at the time of the uh, today and at the time of the Reformation, there was the false doctrine of works righteousness that came in, so there was in the Old Testament church. But it was not because some people, some Christians, have the idea that the Old Testament taught that salvation was by works. That is not true. That is patently a lie. The Old Testament teaches that we are justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Okay. Let, let's get to first, uh, the Exodus chapter 11 because we're down now to about 17 minutes left. Okay. Verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, which is the death of the firstborn. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Now I want to pause here after verse 3 to highlight something we did and highlighted in Coffee Break Bible Study also this past week. And that is the evangelistic character of the Old Testament is shown when the Old Testament children of Israel, or in this case the prophet, did what God gave them to do. That included their worship life. When they worshipped as the Lord had called them to worship, according to the Torah in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, so much was given them very specifically about how they were to worship and the location of God's saving presence there at the tabernacle and the daily sacrifices and so forth. When they were true to the Lord in what he had given them to do, they became what we have in the catechism for this week, a special people, but use the old language because it's more accurate, peculiar. 
the peculiarity of the Old Testament worship life of the Israels was itself attractive in many ways, but one of them is in this sense. Why do you do these things? Why do you worship this way? The same must be true for the church today to be true to ourselves, to the word of God and the Christian heritage of worship, which is rooted in the word of God. It's not a matter of personal preference. The, for example, that we have the Lord's preaching before the Lord's Supper is an apostolic mandate. It's not something that the church said, oh, let's do it this way. And since, uh, since we have to have so many services during the pandemic, we'll just get rid of the sermon and just have the Lord's Supper. We can get in and out of here in about 10 minutes. No, there are, there are deep-seated structures to the, to the worship. And by apostolic mandate and by prophetic witness. So here, notice the Egyptians, they respond. Well, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but the common Egyptian responded to what the Lord did through the ministry of Moses to the extent that they're giving the gold and the silver. Here, take this, take this. There was an acknowledgement and a confession by the Egyptians, the common citizens, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is greater than all the gods of Egypt. And it was not done by compromise. That message was not communicated. It was done by being, by fidelity and being true to the word of God. Okay, so verse 4. Then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. At midnight. Now, I didn't, I didn't realize this for a long time. Where does this come from? When all was still and it was midnight, your almighty word descended from the royal throne. That's Christmas Eve. And when I first heard the Christmas Eve intro, which is a very old origin, I thought this is not right. And what I was thinking of is the midnight of, like, we celebrate Christmas Eve, December 24th. You know, midnight on the 24th. Your almighty word descended. This is not right because it gives the impression that his incarnation began at Christmas rather than nine months earlier at the Annunciation. But that's not the point. The point of midnight is the midnight darkness of sin, and of death. So when in the Christmas intro, when all was still and it was midnight, the darkness of sin and death and bondage to Satan from which we could not free ourselves, your almighty word descended from the royal throne. But it also goes back here then to the Exodus. Because the redemption from the slavery of the Exodus finds its fulfillment in the condescension of the Son of God in the midnight of this world of sin and death to redeem us with his blood. So, once again, I learn about the, uh, 
Don't be so quick to toss out things that have been handed down to us in the liturgy. There may be some great wisdom and teaching from the generation that has preceded us. All right, uh, verse 6, then what happens? Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. Now that language is reminiscent of Jesus' eschatological catechesis when he talks about the suffering and the great tribulation where faith in Christ is assaulted and there shall not be a tribulation like this, nor has there ever been. And if they, those days had not been shortened, no flesh would survive. Think about the plagues that culminated in the death of the firstborn. If the plagues had not stopped, would there have been anything left of Egypt? Nothing. So you can see themes of the gospel, themes of the second coming, themes of judgment, as well as the incarnation and the sacrifice of Christ the Passover are all here. And no wonder Luther says that you know, Christ is on every page. All right, but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all the, so there is an advantage to being a Christian. You are given a certain right and privilege and status as baptized children of God that the unbeliever who rejects the gospel does not have. So come to church, Wally. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out. And all the people who follow you, after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. That is the reason why God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? He's not going to listen to you. He's going to harden his heart further. But by this, what does he say? My wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month, the month that the Passover is now being instituted and then celebrated. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now notice what's happening here. The Lord is reordering time. And he's reordering time for the Old Testament church around the Passover. The Passover sacrifice an annual celebration was constitutive of them as God's people. What do I mean by constitutive? It constituted them as God's people. The crowning, consummating event that was promised in the promise made to the patriarchs is there in the Passover, which then finds its fulfillment in Jesus' death and in the Lord's Supper. But it, he reorders time. This is constitutive. This is the point of origin for you as the people of God. 
Now, fast forward. That's what the cross and resurrection is for us. That is the beginning and the end of our lives as Christians. Because therein, our Lord accomplished salvation for us. And in our baptism, we are united to this. Cindy? Well, the, the, yeah, the church here begins with Advent and so forth. But, oh, you're talking about um, in A.D. Yeah, the Emperor Constantine. Yes, that's very good. Now, he was off by a couple of years, but that was his idea, that, that all of time should be determined from the birth of Christ. Okay? And what this is saying is for the Old Testament, the Passover was the defining moment, as we would say the death and resurrection of Christ, the defining moment. And that is what Constantine was wanting to do when Christianity became uh, legal. All right, now verse uh, 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house Take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So a number of things here. The quantity of meat was to be determined on the basis of the size of the household. Why? so that there was nothing left over. Believe it or not, this has shaped the church's historic practice of the Lord's Supper, being careful to consecrate what is needed for everyone in the house, but not more. And certainly, there was no reservation of it. The older practice was to consume everything from the Lord's Supper. Then, without blemish, a male without blemish, from the sheep or from the goats. What does this anticipate? Christ, who is the unblemished sacrifice, without a defect. You'll also notice here that what would defile the Passover sacrifice is if its bones were broken. Remember Jesus in the Passion. They did not break his legs that the scriptures might be fulfilled. All of this is intended to not only line up with Christ, but then give faith its basis and its certainty. All right. Verse 6. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Twilight is just before sundown. The whole congregation. So notice the Passover lamb, it's always spoken of in the singular, even though there are many lambs, right? Because Christ, our Passover lamb, is the singular sacrifice for sin. All of those other lambs in the plural find their fulfillment in Christ. And it is substitutionary, isn't it? The whole congregation shall make the sacrifice at twilight. So, I love this. Caiaphas, who hated Jesus, as did the Sanhedrin, 
Caiaphas, who was the official high priest, ends up doing what the high priest is supposed to do at the time of the Passover, and that is officiate over the sacrifice. He's the one that delivers Jesus to Pilate, and then Pilate gives him, if you read the Passion, Jesus back to the high priest for the sacrifice. You see? So you can't, when you fight against the Lord, you lose. So Caiaphas, fighting against the Lord, loses. Even what he says ends up to being prophetic truth. It is expedient that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. So what happens? One man dies for the people. You know, in fulfillment of the Passover, the whole congregation of the assembly of Israel shall kill the lamb at twilight. And there's the idea of substitutionary atonement. Philip, did you have a question? Yeah, oh, Pi, I, 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 it's in John's gospel that Pilate, or Pilate asks the question, what is truth? And then proceeds to confess the truth throughout the Passion. And not only Pilate, but Caiaphas and so many others. All right. So they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it, do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. Now the idea of a complete and total roasting out of the life from the flesh of the lamb is in token of, to go back to our conversation earlier, Jesus' lifeblood would be spent completely and entirely to make atonement for sin. There is no blood left nor can your blood make atonement for sin. It's interesting, all of those sacrifices going back to the Passover itself were all substitutionary sacrifices. There is no human being of the household of Israel that was sacrificed for their sins. Every one of the sacrifices was substitutionary. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. I learned this long after the fact, it's practice in the church, that the reverence for the real presence of Christ's body and blood meant that if something desecrated the sacrament, that uh, then it would be burned, sort of like you would do with the, the American flag, you know, if something desecrated it. Uh, but you did it in a respectful way. Uh, I learned this a couple of decades ago that the church's practice, if someone who partook of the sacrament vomited right afterwards, they would carefully take up the vomit and then burn it. You know, maybe if we had those practices going on today, we would have a greater respect for the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament. And we'd also be less afraid of the common cup. By the way, in the Passover, the head of the household was the officiant. And one cup, wine would be poured. There were the prayers of thanksgiving. Like sometimes we call the Lord's Supper the Eucharist, which means in Greek, thanksgiving. He gave thanks. 
And then those, after those prayers, that common cup would be passed to everyone in the family. You fill the cup again, the cup of blessing. St. Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless. That's harking back to the Old Testament Passover and then to the consecration in the New Testament. Is it not the participation in the blood of Christ? Yes, it is. So that cup of blessing was the idea that then the officiant blessed the cup and drinking in the cup was to the idea of drinking in the salvation of the Lord. Okay, And then that cup was shared. So one body, one blood, one communion with Christ and with one another. All right. So uh, we're running out of time here. You shall eat it with a belt around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, because this is the feast for our earthly pilgrimage. See, we're on a pilgrimage. I'm but a stranger here. Heaven is my home, as the hymn says. So we're on a pilgrimage out of this veil of tears to the life to come. And the food that sustains us in the wilderness is his body and blood. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And this is where we will pick it up next week. When I see the blood, I will pass over. I'm going to talk to you next week about Luther's great Easter hymn. See his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it. Death passes o'er. And Satan cannot harm us. How about that? All right. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.